Once again, Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Well, those videos were done in New York City. It looks like there's a lot of ministry to be done in New York City, uh, talking about who Jesus is and, and what is, who is he really. And I've wondered, you know, if we actually did some street videos in Amarillo, what would people say? The question that everyone was asked is, who is Jesus? Would everyone in Amarillo affirm the unique divinity of Jesus, that he is the only son of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Would everyone in Amarillo say that? George Barna, a church statistician, has done a nationwide survey that discovered over 40% of Americans do not believe that Jesus was divine. They may believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher or a religious leader, but they do not believe that Jesus was God's one and only son, fully God and fully man. Of course, the idea of viewing Jesus as just a great moral teacher or a prophet has been around for a really, really long time. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, which the woman mentioned uh, earlier in the video, who was a lifelong Hindu, and he would say he was a student of Jesus. His nonviolent practices in India were driven by the Sermon on the Mount that he read in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Mahatma Gandhi says this about Jesus. I regard Jesus as a great teacher of humanity, but I do not regard him as the only begotten Son of God. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, has a lot of different answers for a lot of different people, doesn't it? If you were to ask a a Muslim who is Jesus, they'd say, well, Jesus was a great prophet, but Muhammad is the greater prophet because he is more recent. If you were to ask a Hindu who is Jesus, they would say, well, Jesus was a, a guru, a wise man. If you asked a Buddhist, well, who is Jesus, they would say, well, he was an enlightened teacher. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you that Jesus at one time existed as Michael or the archangel. If you asked a Mormon who Jesus was, well, he'd say that Jesus is the spiritual brother of Lucifer because they are both children of God the Father. There are a lot of opinions about who Jesus is out there today. So what does the Bible say about who Jesus really is? To find out, open your Bibles, your Red Pew Bibles, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1063 of your Red Pew Bible. Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Before I begin reading the Gospel of Mark, though, I want to take just a a moment to give a little bit of background about the Gospel of Mark before we launch a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark does not identify himself in his Gospel. He doesn't say, I'm Mark, writing the Gospel of Mark. Mark was not one of the original apostles, but he was, as we saw in the book of Acts, a companion of Paul and Barnabas's on their first missionary journey. In fact, he was the cousin of Barnabas. And later we learned that actually Mark ended up connecting with Peter and he became a missionary companion of Peter's. Yes, Mark doesn't identify himself as the author of the Gospel of Mark, but the earliest church fathers all tell us that Mark wrote Mark. In fact, uh, second century Clement of Alexandria writes this, 
The gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them out. And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. Mark is actually mentioned in the very last chapter of 1 Peter as someone who is a son of, Mark, of Peter's, like a son of the faith. Mark was a companion of, of Peter's, and uh, many uh, commentators will tell, me, tell us that uh, Mark was obviously multilingual. He was able to write the New Testament in Greek, but that Peter, as a fisherman, was probably spoke primarily Aramaic, and so he needed Mark to come alongside him to serve as his interpreter, to help share the good news with others. And uh, as we pointed out, most scholars believe that uh, because he was a companion of Peter's, that Mark probably wrote his gospel uh, probably in the mid-60s to late-60s. Uh, because Peter was, as you may know from church history, was ultimately killed uh, by Nero in Rome. Uh, he was crucified upside down. And so it appears that uh, uh, apostles Peter and Paul uh, knew Mark quite well, that Mark was very uh, familiar with them. And so many scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel in the 60s, over 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, some of us may wonder, gosh, it took 30 years for them to write down the gospel. Why did it take so long? Why didn't they write down what Jesus was doing as soon as it happened? Well, less than 10% of the population in the first century was literate. Writing stuff down wasn't the best way to communicate. The best way to communicate in the first century was to, to speak. It was an oral society. They told stories, and those stories were shared. In fact, if you've ever been exposed to a primarily oral community where mostly they talk and they don't read as much, uh, it's incredible what they can listen and, and learn. I, I saw this when I worked with the Maasai tribe in Kenya several years ago. I went to a uh, disciple and minister among uh, the Maasai tribe there, and these are uh, Africans who have the long spears, and they've got these tattoos on their, their cheeks, and uh, they're known as lion hunters, and m- many of them are not literate. And so I was sitting with a room full of people sharing parables, people who couldn't read, and as I would share the parables, I would ask them questions about the parables of Jesus I had just told And I was amazed at how well they could answer the questions. Then I would ask for a volunteer to share the parable they heard heard me tell one time. And I was amazed at how accurate they could tell a story, having only heard it one time. The children among the Messiah tribe can can listen and remember beautiful things. I need my children to hang out with them for a little while so they could hear and remember and repeat what I say, because those kids were listening a lot better than mine do at times. Of course, we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that it was the Holy Spirit who ultimately inspired Mark in the 60s to write his gospel. And every scholar agrees that Mark is the first gospel written, that Matthew and Luke used Mark to help drive much of what they wrote. His church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome and and that Mark probably wrote his gospel either right before that or soon after that so that the teachings of Peter could be uh, retained and not lost to history. This is around sometime, around 64 AD, of course, that Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And so it was probably around the late 60s, mid-60s that that, uh, Mark wrote his gospel. And it's in this context where Nero, the emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world at the time, burns or is responsible for helping burn part of Rome, blames these Christians, and then begins to actively persecute Christians that Mark writes his gospel It's the midst of persecution. It's the midst of hard times. It's the midst of uncertainty that Mark writes his gospel. He writes good news so that the church might be encouraged by the good news of Jesus. You know, I don't know about you, but I could use some 
good news today. I don't know what your 2017 was like, but I imagine all of us hope and pray that 2018, this new year, will be even better than last year. Isn't that what we always hope for, that this year will be better than last year? Now, 2017 wasn't a bad year for me. I certainly made some good memories. My uh, oldest daughter, on her 13th birthday, we decided to take a father-daughter trip to Houston to retrace her steps to the city where she was born and where she was baptized and the church that she was baptized and looked at the house where she first grew up. And that was a great trip. We made some great memories. Uh, On the 4th of July, I traveled with uh, my other children, Elizabeth and John, to Arlington to Six Flags and Hurricane Harbor, and we went to watch a the Red Sox playing the Rangers, and I'm a Red Sox fan, and they won, so that was a great day for me. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And in September, uh, my wife, along with several members of our church, traveled to Germany to celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther put the 95 Theses on the door of the church there in Wittenberg. It was a great year in so many respects, but it wasn't perfect. In 2017, I, I saw two families that I've known for a really long time, two different families go through a painful divorce after 20 plus years of marriage. In 2017, my family learned that my father's prostate cancer had returned. In 2017, I had to do a funeral of some of the pillars of our church, members of our congregation who have been leaders, one of our own elders, Bill McKinney, this year. In 2017, I also had to go to Dallas to do the funeral of a groomsman of mine who unexpectedly took his own life. 2017 wasn't easy. It wasn't perfect. No year is. We all face challenges. We all face hard times. We all face sorrow. So it's in the midst of the sorrow and the pain and sometimes the uncertainty that we all need good news. So knowing that Mark brought good news to the church in the 60s when it was really hard for the church in Rome, let us open our Bibles to listen to the good news that Mark has for us today. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Mark to put pen to paper to tell the story of the life and the teachings and the miracles and the works of Jesus. I pray, O Lord, that as we read your word that you might speak to us, that we might hear the good news you want us to hear today, that we might live into that good news as your faithful followers, that you might use this time to transform our lives from the inside out, that you might open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts, that we might be transformed, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1063 of your Red Pew Bible. Listen to the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to pause there just for a moment. The beginning of the gospel. The gospel, the Greek word for gospel is eugelion. The eugelion is good news, literally, and it was the eugelistist or the evangelist who would bring good news from the battlefield that that the army had won, that there was victory. And, And so Mark writes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of the victory over sin and death that Jesus has won for us. If you read Mark's gospel, you'll see that Mark describes in 16 chapters three years of Jesus's ministry. 
Mark doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. He begins with the baptism of Jesus and the public ministry of Jesus. And he he just describes those three years of powerful ministry where where Jesus is able to preach these powerful parables and and preach these powerful sermons. But more importantly, he's also able to heal people, give sight to a blind man, allow a lame man to walk, even bring the dead back to life. There's great power in Jesus' story. The miraculous power Mark wants us to see, the miraculous power of Jesus. Jesus' power to heal, Jesus' power to cast out demons, Jesus' power to cast, to to calm a storm, His power to raise the dead. Then in Mark 10, a shift takes place. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus is telling His disciples that, you know, even the Son of Man did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And then the last six chapters of Mark describe the last week of Jesus' life here on this earth. The first 10 chapters are trying to cover three years, but the last six chapters cover one final week. Clearly, Mark wants us to see the importance of the crucifixion of Christ's death. Mark is helping us see that even though Jesus was powerful, even he had to suffer. And as we follow Jesus, we can't think that for one moment that we're going to be any better than our master That if Jesus had to suffer, we're going to have to go through some suffering as well. But the good news is found in the last few verses of Mark 16. For for Jesus rises again. There's the resurrection. and, And we too will rise again. No matter what problems we may go through, we can find comfort in the good news, the gospel of Jesus. That because he lives, we too shall live. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. You know, we often say Jesus Christ so much that we think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. Uh, Christ is actually, in the Greek, it's Christos. Uh, It means the anointed one specifically, if you were to translate it. It's it's a title. Jesus is the anointed one, or or as they would say in the Hebrew, he was the Messiah. He's the Savior, the one who has come to, to save us. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice that he says, the son of God. He doesn't say a son of God like the woman in the video thought Jesus is just a son of God like all these other peoples are children of God. No, Jesus is the son of God. Fully God, fully man. Notice the emphasis on Christ's unique nature. All four gospels testify to the unique nature of Jesus. A man but also God, the God-man, who's become one of us, who had a sinless nature. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
in those days. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's bizarre. All the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to John out in the wilderness to confess their sins, to be baptized by, by John? John was a very, very, very popular man. People were willing to travel miles and miles and miles to be baptized by John in the middle of nowhere. Despite his locust breath, weird clothes, bad location, message of repentance, people wanted to be baptized by John. Why? Well, John the Baptist, John the Baptist was, as we know from the Gospel of Luke, was a special, special person. He was the son of Elizabeth, and as we read in the Gospel of Luke, Elizabeth was well along in years when she had John, and Elizabeth is a relative of Mary's, and so John is a relative of Jesus, as they are related. And Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, says this about John, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's my son's favorite verse in the Bible, by the way, John Griffin. None is greater than John, Dad. Sure. None is greater than John the Baptist. None, none born of women is greater than John the Baptist. He was an incredible prophet. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that they've been waiting over 400 years for a prophet to come. The last prophet is the last book in the Old Testament. It's Malachi. He spoke in the 400 B.C., a mighty word from God, but they've been waiting for someone like Elijah, as Malachi uh, prophesied, someone like Elijah would come and, and help bring in the reign of God. And, and so we see that John the Baptist begins to preach this bold message of repentance, helping prepare the way in the wilderness, as, as Chuck read just a moment ago from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's a fulfillment of, of prophecy, and so people want to come and see this, this John who speaks God's word so boldly and prophetically. But notice what is the the crux of John's message, the focus of John's message. It's not himself. It's the one who is mightier than he who is coming. For John says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. To say that he's not worthy to untie the sandal straps of Jesus is to say that he's not worthy to be a slave of Jesus. For only Gentile slaves would be required to untie the sandal straps of their owner. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be a a Gentile slave of Jesus. He's so mighty. He's so powerful. Of course, Jesus' greatness isn't just found in the 
powerful endorsement that comes from, from his relative John, as great as that was. In fact, Mark is helping us see how, how important uh, Jesus is by speaking about John first, because John was, was very, very popular. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, writes more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. John the Baptist was known by many. And as popular as John the Baptist was, John is saying, look, I'm not that great. There's one who's even greater than I am, that I'm not even worthy to be a slave to this man. Of course, Jesus' power isn't found in simply the endorsement of John the Baptist. Jesus' power and glory and divinity is found in the, in the testimony of his heavenly Father. At Jesus' baptism, the Trinity, all three of them show up, Right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all there. When Jesus is baptized, as soon as he comes up, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes down upon Jesus. And then God the Father speaks a bold word saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father is pleased with God the Son because Jesus has always done and said what his Father told him to do and say. Jesus was sinless, always doing what his heavenly father told him to do, even when he didn't want to do it, even when he didn't want to suffer and die. He said, Lord, not my will, but, but yours be done. Yes, Jesus was sinless. And yet George Barna tells us that 48% of Americans do not believe that Jesus was sinless. They don't believe in the sinless nature of Christ. But for us, that should be a, a word of comfort. It should give us assurance of, of our salvation. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross for his sins. He was sinless. He died on the cross for our sins. It's the sinless nature, the divine nature of Christ brings us great comfort in knowing that our sins have been atoned for by his death. It's in verse 11. Mark is letting us know that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than any prophet who's ever lived. Jesus is more powerful than any king who has ever lived. For Jesus has the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, the power to raise the dead. Even though the church in Rome in the 60s is being persecuted by Nero, the most powerful man in the world in the eyes of most people that day, even though Nero is actively persecuting the church, Mark is reminding us that Jesus is even more powerful than Nero. For we all know that Nero is dead, but Jesus is alive. We all know that Muhammad is dead, but Jesus is alive. We all know that Buddha is dead, but Jesus is alive. We all know that Mahatma Gandhi is dead, but Jesus is alive. And because he lives, we can have full assurance of eternal life. He's conquered sin and death on our behalf. Yes, 2017 may have been a bad year. It may have been a hard year. It may have been a year filled with sorrow and pain and struggle. But the good news for us today is that because Jesus lives, we know that sin and death do not have the final say. That we will be raised again. That we might get knocked down, but God will help raise us up again. I don't know what last year was like for you, but I do know we all hope that 2018 will be better. And I also know that as Jesus tells us, in this world, we're going to have trouble. There will be no perfect years. But when times get hard, let us put our hearts and minds towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Yes, guided by his teachings, empowered by his spirit. Let us begin 2018 with the confidence of knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That as Jesus tells his disciples right before ascending into heaven in the gospel of Matthew, lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Yes, Jesus is with us. And Jesus, as God's son, is the one who holds us and holds our future in the very palm of his hands. From the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. And he goes on to explain in chapter 10, verse 27 to 30, he says, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. He is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Because Jesus is divine, because he is God's one and only son with more power than any human has ever had before. We can have full faith and confidence that we can go into this new year knowing that he is with us. He will guide us. He will carry us. No matter what happens, we can find strength in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who came to save us, the one who rose again, the one who promises that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, thanks be to God that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's the son of God, fully God and fully man, able to carry all of our needs and concerns each and every day. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you are more than a prophet, more than just a religious leader. You're God incarnate, the son of God, the great I am, fully God and fully man. Oh God, we thank you for the good news that you give to us, that you are more powerful than sin and death itself. That in this world we'll have trouble, that in this world we will have heartache, but we can turn to you, we can set our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and know that you will be with us. You will guide us, you will lead us, you will carry us. That nothing can snatch us out of the palm of your loving hand. And for that, we give you our thanks and praise.